An exile is a person who has been sent away or kept away from their country, often for political reasons. Exiles have a longing to go home. They miss their people. They miss their culture. Exiles live in a land that's not their own. They live with people who don't share the same values that they have, and they often have a different ethnicity, heritage, or way of life than those people with whom they are now living. And as a result, it's really difficult to be in exile. And there is a longing for home. The first verse of 1 Peter addresses the letter to those elect exiles of the dispersion. The book is written to Christians who are spread all throughout Europe because of persecution, and they're now living in lands that are not their own. Life is difficult for these exiles, and Peter, the apostle, writes to them to encourage them That no matter how they're feeling, no matter what their outlook is, no matter what life is looking like or their prospects going forward, stand fast. Stand fast in the midst of these difficult times. I'm sure that there are times when you might feel like in exile. Probably not for political purposes, but there are times when we feel like spiritual exiles. And the reason for that is that right now, at this moment of history, we are in the middle of a massive cultural shift. Since the founding of the United States of America, there has been a positive outlook that the sort of external signs of a spiritual life were considered to be a good thing. (laughs) It was a good thing to be an honest person. It was a good thing to have good morals as defined by the Bible. It was a good thing to be part of a worshiping community in a local church. And as a result, there was a positive pressure toward these good things. But right now, You and I are living in a time and a place where what was once a positive pressure is now becoming a negative pressure. That if you want to follow the Lord Jesus totally and completely, you will be viewed as a radical. You will be viewed as prudish. And you will probably be viewed as downright weird. And this creates the dynamic of a spiritual exile. Some of you already feel this way. Some of you maybe not yet, but you will in coming months or years. And for some of us, that creates a longing A longing to go back to the way things used to be. For others of us, it's a longing for home. A different type of home than we have today. But the message of 1 Peter is this. Fear not, exile. Because in the midst of difficulty, Peter has perspective 
life perspective altering truths about how to stand fast in difficult times. And he sets the whole book on its trajectory right here in the beginning of the first chapter, and he does so for the sake of your encouragement. If you walk out of here today with one thing, I want you to walk out of here with a tremendous sense of encouragement that your salvation creates in you a glorious living hope that will see you through all the difficult times of your life. And he begins in verses 1 and 2 with this phrase, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. But before that, he packs in all of these tremendously rich words and terms and ideas so tightly together that it might be easy to, easy to gloss over them as merely introductory. But don't miss it. We're not going to miss this because this truth or these truths set the whole pathway forward and the tone is upbeat and optimistic and encouraging even though the tenor of life is almost the exact opposite. Hard and difficult and painful. He addresses those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. That is to say that God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the lives of these people and they're involved in your life. To say that they are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, means that God knew them. That's what foreknowledge is. He knew them before the foundation of the world. He didn't just know about them. He didn't just know about decisions that they may or may not make. He didn't just know about circumstances they may or may not come across. He knew them. And when you feel like an exile who is in a far-off land wondering if God has forgotten you, <laughs> to rest in the reality of him intimately knowing you is a wonderful, comforting truth. He chose them. He elected them, it says, to be his children. And this is an incredible act of his love. The situation he has them in right now is one in which Peter says that the Spirit is sanctifying them. That is, that God is the Spirit of God, which indwells the children of God, is working in those children to make them more holy. That's what sanctification is. Even in the midst of their difficulty, he's growing them and making them more holy. And it says this is occurring for obedience to Jesus and for the sprinkling with his blood. That is, that as God, the Father, embraces them as their heavenly Father, and as the Spirit of God indwells them to sanctify them and to make them more holy, they are growing in a particular type of obedience to the commands of their Savior, Jesus. That obedience is something that you grow in as God works in you. 
and that the sprinkling of his blood is that we trust and rely on Jesus as we do so. We're sprinkled or cleansed with the blood of the cross, which removes our sin, makes us right with God, and resting in a relationship with him. And all of this is happening to exiles. All of this is happening to people who are persecuted, who are outcasts, who are living in a place that's not their own, who are discouraged, and who are longing for something better. And by extension, all of this is applied to any of the children of God. That God can give you great joy especially if you are feeling the weight of living in difficult times, if you feel like an outcast, or if you are starting to feel like a spiritual exile. And the implications are profound. Two of them that just become immediately obvious are this, that God is with you. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You might feel like you're alone. Perhaps you feel like God has distanced himself from you. Perhaps you feel like your struggle with reoccurring sin is such that the chasm between you and God has become so great that it will never be overcome again. But listen and know this, that if you have faith in Jesus, God is with you. And secondly, this means that God has chosen you for this moment for a purpose. Perhaps you are struggling mightily. Perhaps you feel like there is no one who can spiritually encourage you. Perhaps you have difficulty in relationships or difficulty in your job or difficulty in your marriage or difficulty with your health. Maybe the weight of all that is going on in this world is pressing down upon you. But Christian, recognize the fact that God has you Right here, right now, in this time in history and in this place, for a purpose. And if that's true, then no matter how difficult the situation might be, you can handle it with the strength that God provides. No matter how bad it is, there is some good in it because God ordained it. No matter how dark the days become, there is light because God is making you more holy through it by the work of his Spirit. I don't know what the situation is for you today, <laughs> but take great courage because of these truths of God. Perhaps things are going well for you today, and this is encouragement on top of encouragement. Good. It should be. But when the days turn dark, and they do for all of us in some moments, the truths 
of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit working out salvation in the life of those who are his children are the things that tether you and give you grace and peace that are multiplied to you. And all of that, just in the introduction. (laughs) It's encouraging to see that Peter goes on in verses 3 through 5 and points us to a living hope that we can have because of our salvation. Look at it with me. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He begins to say that we have hope because God is merciful. Now, there are a lot of ways that we can describe God, a lot of attributes of God that we look to, and and a lot of encouraging attributes that we say, I love that aspect of God's character. I wonder how often you think about God's mercy in that mix. Mercy is the only way that we experience salvation. There's a story about a mother who came to Napoleon Bonaparte on behalf of her son who was about to be executed. And the mother asked the ruler to issue a pardon, but Napoleon pointed out that this was the man's second offense and justice demanded death. I don't ask for justice, the woman replied. I plead for mercy. And the emperor objected, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. Sir, the mother replied, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask. And he was issued the pardon. You see, the same is true for me (laughs) and for you. That we don't deserve the mercy of God. But he gives it to us anyway. And this mercy propels us toward hope. The hope that Peter describes is a living hope. It's sure because it is founded on the resurrection of Jesus. To say that it's a living hope points to the fact that no matter what the circumstances are in your life, that the hope that resides in us, it grows in us, it propels us forward to a unique type of confidence and optimism. It's certainly grounded in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, Peter says. And it's grounded here because it gives us ever more confidence. Jesus' death 
and and paying the penalty for sin has already happened. His resurrection and the conquering of sin, death, and the devil has already happened. And so if this is the foundation of your salvation before God Himself, then it's already done. It's already accomplished. There's nothing left to do. And that means that you're longing for God You're resting for your future. Your hope is not mere sort of short-lived optimism. Your hope is not resting on a dead hero. Your hope is not grounded in a great teacher or a mighty man of history. Your hope rests on a work that's already done and a Savior that is still living. And because he lives, we too can live. And in a culture of death, that good news of life is absolutely wonderful. And that's why Peter says that we are born again. We are given new life to this living hope. The resurrection of Jesus, in that resurrection, God gave Jesus life. He also gives us life. Because he lives, we do too. And he fathers us in this new life and sees us through all of the dynamics of this life until we receive our inheritance. And so listen to what Peter is saying. He's saying that we have hope because of God's mercy. We have hope because of Christ's resurrection. We have hope because of our eternal inheritance. Mercy, resurrection, inheritance. It sounds to me like he's talking about salvation. That our salvation... (laughs) gives us living hope that will see us through the difficult trials of life. That so great is the salvation that God gives his children. So great is his gift to you that when you grasp it more fully, it will see you through the most difficult days of your life. And he settles in for a moment on the nature of of our inheritance. Now when you hear the word inheritance, I'm sure there's a number of images that come rushing into your mind. Maybe it's a prized family heirloom, maybe it's a dilapidated old house, maybe it's a big check, or maybe it's nothing at all. The inheritance that you receive from God as one of his children is almost impossible to describe. There are very few images that come rushing into our mind when we think about that inheritance. And Peter can't describe it in its totality either. But he does give us some description as to the certainty of it. He uses three words to describe this inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. To say something is imperishable means that it will not be destroyed, it will not die. To say something is undefiled means that it will not be polluted. And to say something is unfading means that it will not experience decay. 
Our human condition is such in which nearly everything is perishable. There's almost nothing that's imperishable. Everything dies. Your possessions will ultimately be destroyed. Your pets will pass away. Your money will ultimately diminish and run out. Your friends and your family and even your own body are not far behind on the doorstep of death. Everything dies in this life, on this earth. But our inheritance of heaven will never die. It will never be destroyed. He says this inheritance is also undefiled. We can't really imagine a world that hasn't been defiled by sin, can we? Can you try to imagine that? A world that has not been defiled? A world in which the truth is always told without an angle? How many people want that today? I know I do. A world in which you don't have to lock your door at night? A world in which you don't have to worry about who or what is influencing your children. A world in which self-serving behavior that seems at times to dominate the human experience is no more. I think of the story of the peevish old fellow who boarded the train one day and he occupied the best seat. And then he tried to reserve the seat next to him for himself by placing his luggage on it. And just before the crowded train departed from the station, a teenager came running across the platform, jumped onto the train, and came into this car. The car is full, the old man shouted irritably. And as the teenager walked his way up the aisle, the old man said, That seat next to me is reserved for my friend who left his luggage here. But the young man paid no attention, and he picked up the luggage and sat down in the seat and said to the old man, Well, I'll just wait here until he comes. And he put the luggage on his knee. Of course, the friend, the friend, never came. And soon the train began to move. And as it glided past the platform, the young fellow, thinking rather quickly, tossed the bag right through the open window and turned to the old man and remarked, well, apparently your friend has missed the train. We don't want him to miss his luggage, too. self-serving, defiled behavior. Can you try to think of a world that is undefiled? You can't do it, can you? I can't do it. But even though we can't conceive of what that might be, for those of you who are in Christ you will experience that reality forever. What a tremendous inheritance. The last thing that he says about this inheritance is that it's unfading, which means it will never decay. When I, I like cars, I'm a car guy. When I think of decay, I think of rust on a car. <laughs> Chewing away at the substance. 
month after month, year after year, until you either get rid of the car or there's nothing left. When you think of decay, you might think of the human body with joints that now ache in humidity because of arthritis, with skin that used to be taut, which is now starting to wrinkle or sag with the years of gravity, and muscles that used to be twice as big or at least twice as strong as they are today. The truth of the matter is this. Every day after your peak physical condition, you are on the road of decay. But our inheritance will never decay. And for those who are found in Christ, those are the ones who will be raised from their grave to meet Jesus in the air, and they will receive bodies that will be made incorruptible forever, unfading, unable to decay. Friends, that's our salvation. You're going through some hard stuff right now. Take some steps back and say, what is the biggest picture here? And Peter says, our salvation gives us a living hope that sees us through the most difficult times in this life. He makes that connection in verses 6 through 9. He says that you can have joy in these trials or these difficult times because of this hope, because of this salvation. Remember, he's writing to exiles. He's writing to people who fled throughout Europe because of persecution. He's writing to people who have been separated from their families. He's writing to people who as, are under the fear of death, who've received physical lashings, who have been hunted down. He's writing to people who know what real trials are like. Not just, oh, I didn't get what I want this month. Not just, my, um, my lifestyle has been slightly disrupted or my privileges or my preferences are not being met. We're talking about legitimate, profound trials. And here, in the midst of that, Peter gives us purpose for those trials and he gives us an anchor in those trials. And one of the purposes for those trials, he says in verse 7, is that trials function as a test of genuineness for our faith. That's not the only purpose of trials, but it is a very important one. They test the genuineness of our faith. And he says, so great is the salvation that you've received from God that we can even rejoice in the midst of trials. And the reason that we rejoice is because our faith is shown to be genuine and the trials also purify or strengthen this very faith. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. He says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to help us see how joy and strength and purity and suffering all 
fit together, he gives us the analogy of gold in the fire. When gold is put into the furnace, the gold, the metal itself, does not burn up. It becomes malleable and soft. But all of the impurities that are mixed with that gold are burnt away. And the result is that the gold that remains after emerging from the fire is even more brilliant and even more glorious and even more malleable than it was before. Your faith in God is like gold, if it's genuine. It's precious, it's valuable, it's brilliant, and it is glorious. And as you experience the difficulties of this life, as those fiery trials come upon you, you are placed in the furnace that burns away the impurities of your faith. It burns away your self-confidence. It burns away your self-sufficiency. The trials in life even burn away your sense of self-importance. Difficulties drive us back to reliance upon God. Your faith is probably never stronger than when you have no physical or spiritual ability of your own to get you out of the situation that you absolutely loathe. And all you can do is say, God help me. I have nothing left. And that's what trials do in your life. For some of us, it might take a lot of pain to get there. (laughs) For some of us, it won't be quite as long. It will come faster. But in the end, whether those trials last most of your lifetime or if they are but a mere few days, your endurance through trial gives you a sweet dependence upon God that will result in the praise and glory and honor to Jesus when he returns. And so Peter leads us to reflect on that love for Jesus as the anchor in the midst of suffering and the difficult situations of trials. And he says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that this is inexpressible and filled with with glory. It's interesting that that comes from Peter. The same Peter who has seen the Lord and lived with him, even though he knows that we haven't. His love for Jesus was tested at many turns. You might remember Jesus in Capernaum being served dinner by Peter's mother-in-law who was cured of fever. Or you might 
picture the scene in which Jesus is walking on the water and Peter goes out to meet him and sinks. And he is being lifted out of the water to the response of Jesus saying, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Or Peter sitting by the fire in the courtyard the night of Jesus' trial while Jesus was standing up underneath the suffering that he was experiencing and Peter was wilting under a much less form of suffering as he was being questioned if he was a follower of the Christ. And he denied Jesus three times. Or perhaps after the resurrection you picture this Peter sitting by the coals of fire again asked for another confession when Jesus comes to him at the seashore and says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Peter saw Jesus, he knew Jesus, and he loved Jesus. And he says, that tells the exiles that even though you don't see Jesus, you can know Jesus. And even though you don't see Jesus right now, you can love Jesus. And even though you have not yet seen him, you will see him one day should you continue to believe in him. And until then, he himself, the Lord Jesus, will be the anchor in the midst of the difficulties of life. And so how are you responding? The question turns to you. How are you responding to the trials in your life? Are you wilting under the pain? Are you the type of person that when difficulty comes, engages in some other form of self-indulgence because if this bad thing is happening, then I should be able to do whatever I want in this other area of life? Or are you letting your hope in God and the glory of your salvation see you through the dark hours? G.K. Chesterton once said that hope means hoping when things are hopeless. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless. Otherwise, it's not hope at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is more of a flattery or a platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to become a strength to you. And friends, our salvation, the great salvation we have, gives us a living hope that sees us through our most difficult trials of life. He concludes this section in verses 10 through 12 by pointing to the fulfillment of Jesus and getting to the point where we see that you and I, and really everyone from this time forward, from the time of 1 Peter forward, live in the most privileged time in human history. That the prophets that have come before were all pointing to an event that would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. That they were serving not themselves, but they were serving the ones that would come after them. They were suffering not just unto themselves, but they were suffering for you <laughs> and for me. 
that we get to receive a knowledge of Christ today and the mysteries of God that other people have longed for for millennia. And so take heart. Exile. I know that it can be hard to be faithful, but you have a great salvation and a great God who knows your trials and he's choosing to work in them and who knows you. <laughs> James Van Tholen was a gifted young pastor who in 2001 lost a battle with cancer at the age of 36. In the sermon he preached on his first Sunday back after treatment and just a few Sundays before he would die, he spent some time talking about hope. And I share it with you as we conclude. He said, Believe me, don't put your hope in your legacy or your name recognition or in some sermon you wrote or project you accomplished. Even if it allows you to last a little longer, it won't matter because in the end, you'll still be swallowed up and your place will remember you no more. The story of Lazarus being raised isn't really the story of Lazarus. It's the story of Jesus. Lazarus got a few more years, and then he died all over again. He was resuscitated, not resurrected. The story of Jesus is a much greater story. The story of Lazarus makes for a good film, but it's not much to rest your entire existence on. But this isn't the story of Lazarus. It's the story of Jesus. The story of the one who gives life, even through his death. The story of the one who breathes the breath of God into utterly dead souls. Our place will know us no more. It's true. All the stuff that we think will keep us alive, when we really look at it, it only shows us how little we have to depend on, to stake our lives on, to put all of our hopes in. All we really have is the scandalous gospel of grace that while we were still weak and sinners and even enemies, Christ died for us. My place will know me no more. But God knows me. The giver of life who came and kept coming to me before I ever went to him, he knows me. And so I have hope. Hope on which I can rest all that I am. I'm dying. Maybe it'll be longer instead of shorter. Maybe I'll preach for several months instead of a few weeks, but I'm dying. And it's hard, and I hate it, and I'm frightened by it. But there is hope. An unshakable hope. That hope is not something in something I've done, some purity I've kept, or some sermon I've written. I hope in God. The scandalous God with a plan the world has never heard of. Reaching out for an enemy. Saving a sinner. Dying 
for the week and that I can stake my life on. I must, and so must you. Our salvation gives us a living hope that sees us through the most difficult times in life. And so what do you do with that? When the dark hours come, you remember the great truths of God. You step back and you recognize your place as a child that he's given life to. You remember the purpose of his trials to purify you and you rest in the confidence of a resurrected Lord. Amen.